Okay, now for the reading of God's word. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. You may be seated. A short prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, pray that you'd open our hearts and our ears. Pray for the preaching of your word throughout the world today. That it would be bold, that it would be meek. Amen. I think it was Marshall McLuhan, and I know that because Wikipedia told me, a Canadian communication theorist who coined the phrase, the medium is the message. He believed that people would welcome almost any message if you sold it as attractive, in an attractive way. Think of a burglar walking into a house with a piece of meat, throws it to the guard dog. The guard dog is satisfied. The message may be good or bad, as long as the medium was good. It would work. And that would have fit well in the city of Corinth. If you were here for the last couple of weeks, you've heard names of different preachers that they had in Corinth. People like Apollos and Paul. Some claim to follow Peter's teaching. Others claim, others claim just to follow Jesus. And so Paul had been addressing this in the letter up until now. These different divisions that were caused by different preachers. But here he gets this idea uh, that preachers or the medium is what is powerful in the ministry of the Spirit. In a second, we'll look at why that resonated in Corinth. But I think it's not just relevant for preachers here today, but for anyone who shares this gospel, which is all of us, should be all of us. Many of us are raising children. Many of us are teaching or leading Bible studies or maybe reminding our adult children of the good news that they grew up with. We're all communicating something. And by the way, we communicate to our own hearts as well. Scripture tells us to remind ourselves of the truths of the word, the truths of God. And there are, not, there are a number of self-help method, uh, self methods out there. There's devotionals all around us uh, to des- uh, that are designed to help you become a better you. <laughs> And they're slick in the way they present themselves. Quality preaching is so easily accessible. And resources have never been more abundant than they are now with the invention of the internet. I love being able to uh, pull up YouTube and listen to some of my favorite preachers. uh, Tim Kellister, Alistair Begg, Jim Gaffigan. Um, And certainly, God has used... Those who know, know. Certainly, God has used great preachers and great authors to spread uh, uh, great messages around the world, and they influence people to godliness. They've influenced me. So is that what it takes to reach people with the gospel, to address their problems? Do you have to become a world-class preacher or comedian? What message do our hearts need to hear on a daily basis? In our day and age, do we need more books, more preachers, more podcasts, better techniques in communication? In a sense, Paul is actually giving us insight into this question. 
How does the gospel actually change us? What actually works? How is it actually effective? But in order to understand Paul's statement here, I want to explain a little bit about the city of Corinth. I had the chance to uh, go to Corinth in 2018. I've stood in a lot of places Paul stood. I saw a lot of things that he would have been referencing in this letter. It's an amazing experience. I would encourage you to do it anytime you have the, if you ever got the opportunity. But Corinth was a large city at that time, located just east of the Achaean Isthmus, or Peninsula. Um, And initially, it was uh, was a pretty well-populated city, and then they went through a rebellion against the Roman government. And so the the Roman government actually uh, tore it down in 146 BC. And then they repopulated it with 3,000 freed slaves and a Roman garrison. And by the time Paul actually found the church there in 54 AD, the church, the city, now this is amazing, the city had swelled to about 80,000 people. So think about that for a second. And and it held tremendous strategic value uh, for the Roman Empire as a trade city. Uh, The city contained a variety of cultures and religions, including Judaism. Uh, We read in Acts 18 that when Paul first came to the city of Corinth, um, as was his normal custom, he went to the local Jewish synagogue and he began to preach uh, there and as per usual, he met uh, resistance among many of the Jews, um, but some believed Paul. And uh, this is an important tidbit of information because the the Jews who actually did believe Paul, who who did end up becoming uh, Christ followers or Christians, uh, were, was two of them are named Crispus and Sosthenes, both of whom were leaders in the synagogue. So the pastors in the synagogue ended up becoming Christians, while many of the other people didn't. And so uh, Acts 18 tells us that the Jews became so angry with Paul and so angry at the effectiveness of his message that they dragged him down to the town square in front of the Roman ruler Gallio. I've been in this very town square. It's about the size of one of our city blocks here in Kalispell. And in this large dusty area, they were surrounded by, they were literally surrounded on every corner by temples to to Apollos and Aphrodite and Octavia, which was the emperor's sister and a famous fountain uh, dedicated to the oracle at Delphi. And this is where Paul, um, again, this is in Acts 18, was put uh, on a large stone platform in front of the tribunal to give his defense. And that stone platform is actually still there. Um, And you can look uh, to all the different temples around that area. And you can look at the hill uh, where the Temple of Aphrodite, where uh, prostitution was taking place, uh, was over. You could see the, the, the temple on the uh, top of the hill there by Corinth. And um, these are the same prostitutes that actually Paul ends up addressing later on in the chapter when he talks about uh, head coverings and these ty- uh, types of things. But that's later on in the letter. Um, but the text doesn't tell us why. But for whatever, after he gets, for whatever reason, after he gets done defending himself in front of Gallio, the angry mob does not attack Paul, the angry Jewish mob. What they end up doing is they attack one of his disciples, um, one of his converts, uh, Sosothenes. And they actually end up beating Sosothenes right there in the town square in front of a bunch of the Roman guards who were, who were there to protect the citizens. And the text actually says that um, they showed no concern for him whatsoever. Now, you'd think that this would have been the end of Paul's ministry right there. You might think that there's no way that people would invite Paul uh, to their house or, or to listen to him. There's no way that they'd be caught in public with him. They wouldn't be tuning into his YouTube channel in a sense. But in reality, it was actually only the beginning of his ministry there in Corinth. You see, you might have noticed in chapter 1, verse 1, we were told that Sosothenes was actually the co-author of 1 Corinthians. Was he the pastor there? Was he the carrier of the letter to the church at Corinth? We don't know. My mic is on. Good. 
but that was the ministry that God had uh, for uh, giving Paul in Corinth. It was a city full of religions that were hostile towards Paul's claims that Jesus, though he was crucified, was the promised Messiah, the one and only true God, the one and only true wise creator. And converts to this new religion, or wisdom, as the locals would have called it, were met with derision and could not count on the local authorities to actually guard them or to keep them safe. Now, people in Corinth were open to speakers and preachers. They appreciated orators and philosophers who shaped uh, wisdom to help them live their daily lives. In fact, they loved it. And Paul was certainly capable of speaking well, using local arguments. In fact, right before this passage, he was in Greece, and he went to Mars Hill, and he uh, spoke there using very convincing arguments. But he didn't want to rely strictly on talent, talent or the medium. Rather, he was reminding his audience what really made disciples like Sisophanes. Well, what is that? Well, Paul reminds his audience that he did not come to them with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, he did not come to them in the expected fashion of the, cult, of the uh, Greek culture. The Greek orders were judged in three ways. Their ethos, which is their appearance, their pathos, which was their presentation, and their logos, which was their logic. And Paul did not use these metrics as a means to get them to believe in the gospel. In fact, Paul describes his ministry there with terms like weakness and fear and much trembling. Imagine that. By all accounts, Paul was not a physically unique individual. He was a short, bald man. He didn't have the it factor. He wasn't cool. He didn't have a real presence that demanded attention. Rather, Paul was the opposite. Paul, in essence, is saying here, I came to you, when I came to you, I was not impressive in my presentation. And frankly, I wasn't impressive either. And I was pretty afraid of inciting a mob. I mean, look at what happened to Sosophanes, right? It also wasn't because he had a powerful pathos, a presentation, the smoke and light show. In fact, the language of the intellectual elite in Corinth was Latin. And Paul was probably stumbling through preaching Latin, just like I'm stumbling with this microphone here. Okay, here we go. Uh, he was probably stumbling preaching uh, using Latin. He didn't know how to uh, use it well. And he reminds the church, when I was in Athens, uh, I, had the blessed, I was blessed with the opportunity to preach at an international church there. There was 14 different nationalities represented, 14, including Muslim refugees. And I, and I preached in English. It was translated in real time to Greek and Farsi. I haven't a clue what they actually heard, uh, but I guarantee you it was jumbled. But that's what Paul's saying. When I came to you, it wasn't with this great, amazing pathos, this presentation that was slick. Let me give you an example. Some of you will know this. I could say this line straightforward. I, fight and you may die, run and you'll live, at least a while, and dying in your beds many years from now, you'd be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. I could say it like that, or I could dress up in blue face paint and wear a kilt and say it like they did in the movie, and I'm not going to even try to do that. (laughs) But Paul is saying here to his audience that I didn't do the acting job that most speakers do when they come to you to make my message effective. Paul writes, my preaching was not with wise and persuasive words. Paul means to say it wasn't some manipulative skill that I had to convince you that Jesus is your Savior. I was reading Tim Keller's book on preaching, and he quotes George Whitfield, who he, George Whitfield was approached uh, about writing his sermons down in books. 
And this was George Whitfield's uh, res- response. He said, you'll never be able to put down the thunder and lightning on the page. <laughs> and by all accounts, Whitfield was a master with his words, the volume of his voice, uh, the theatrics of preaching. And Paul actually argues, he said, look, I didn't have any of that pathos at all. I didn't come there trying to use manip- manipulative techniques to get you to feel something, to get you to th- believe something. So it wasn't my ethos and it wasn't my pathos. And that's not all. He said, it's not my logos either. It's not my logic. The logos or logic wasn't impressive by Corinthian standards at all. Look at the content of his message. For I decided to know nothing among you except for what? Christ and him crucified. Now that translation is fine. And we could surmise that Paul only taught about, we might surmise that Paul only taught about Jesus being crucified. But that's actually not uh, uh, really what Paul's talking about here. Uh, John Calvin actually helps us understand when he paraphrases what Paul meant. He writes this. He said, uh, again, he's paraphrasing Paul. No kind of knowledge was in my view of so much importance as to lead me to desire anything but Christ, crucified though he was. In other words, Paul's message was not one that was attractive by standards of the day because the hero of the message was crucified. By Corinthian standards, the hero lost. He didn't win. Why should we care about this Jesus message at all? Remember, Paul was preaching in a town where the powerful gods and their beautiful had beautiful statues and, and, and fountains everywhere and temples of which to go worship them in. Think of the Greek sculptures chiseled, you know, in their chiseled bodies, draping with linens. Jesus didn't have that. Think of the powerful mythologies that we, we still read today, swirling around in their heads and forming their consciousness of what God is supposed to be like. In contrast, Paul's message was, was about God giving up power, becoming a man, suffering as he did a servant, and who did not force his power, though he could have, did not force his power on his oppressors, but rather identified with the oppressed and then went to the cross and forgave them. It was backwards. He didn't have a temple in which to dwell. He has no statues to admire. He has no army to avenge him. Rather, his kingdom, us, his kingdom is a community of people who repent of immorality and greed. And all this after being told by very flawed and seemingly uneducated messengers. Paul is saying, look, you might think this has no chance to thrive in a place like Corinth. You might think this wisdom is absolutely absurd. But that's the point. There is no way that this message, this gospel, could have thrived using human metrics. It didn't appeal to the human consciousness. It had to appeal to something greater. It had to to have a different power behind it. It didn't fit into your cultural imagination, no matter how much it was packaged or sold, no matter what the medium was. So how was Paul effective in his missionary encounter in Corinth? Well, uh, how could this message have been so convincing that the Jews who were rioting uh, were so upset about it? And Sisyphus was actually beaten willing to experience physical harm for Jesus. How do we make disciples like that? You ever ask yourself, how, how, how is that possible? The answer is it had nothing to do with Paul. 
just as our greatest gift has nothing to do with us. You see, Paul answers the question when he writes, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You see, just as your salvation was purchased by Jesus demonstrating his love for you by going to the cross, so his grace was given to you by the power of his Spirit. And it is this Spirit that works through you and in you to move your soul to respond to the gospel. And it is this Spirit who uses your words, imperfect as they may be, to change people. I can't remember where, but I've heard it put like this. Imagine you were told by God to go to the local cemetery here in Kalispell. God comes to you and says, uh, I want you to go to the local cemetery, and I want you to proclaim the gospel. In fact, I want you to proclaim this verse, John 3.16. You're going to go there, and you're going to bring back all those people from the dead to life. You're going to bring back them by your voice and by proclaiming John 3.16. Would you think, I should probably bring a really loud sound system. Or maybe a really cool rock band. Right? Or maybe have some good antidotes, have some good illustrations, wear a tie. That'll work. No, of course not. You'd be like Ezekiel when Ezekiel was told to preach to the Valley of Dry Bones, right? He said, how am I going to do this? What's this going to look like? How are these bones going to come to life? And God says, by my spirit, the bones will come alive. You see, Paul wanted to remind them that it was the work of the spirit that brought them to faith, that sanctifies them, that makes disciples, that grows people in holiness, that deepens our conviction, that demonstrates a desired change in your life. By his spirit. It's the same spirit that unites us and uses the message of Jesus and the work of Jesus on the cross to bring them to look at their own sin, to bring us to look at our own sin, to confess it to God, to one another. It's foolish to those who are dead and life-giving and so precious to those who are made alive by it. If Jesus makes no sense to you, you might be dead. If Jesus is beautiful to you, that's evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. that's the demonstration of the Spirit for us today. If you're here today, you're seeking to honor God, you're seeking to do what he wants you to do, you struggle, you have a hard time, that desire has not been given to you by yourself. It's been given to you by God. See, naturally, you don't want anything to do with God. You don't want to obey him. You you want to ignore him. But supernaturally, through his spirit, he warms the coldest heart. He breaks down the strongest pride. By the way, and I know this applies to many of us here. By the way, that is true for even the people who are closest to us. I know some of us here want nothing more than our kids to know know and love Jesus. Adult children, young children old children, whatever, whatever the case is. But we cannot change them any more than we can raise our own body from the grave. 
It is the Spirit who moves. And the demonstration of the Spirit's work is this. Here you are. Some of you know that you have no business walking into a church except for God, by God's grace. The reality is that is all of us. doesn't matter the family we come from, the church we've come from, the culture we've come from. It is the Spirit that made you alive and well. And the Spirit that's going to make the ones around us that we love alive and well. Secondly, the Spirit uses the little that we know and the imperfect ways we communicate it to do His work. You see, Paul only had a year and a half with the Corinthians. He goes on to address issues that we might be tempted to think that the church should have gotten by now. I mean, if you look at the laundry list of issues that Paul has to address in Corinthians, um, you, you think, I mean, it'll make you blush. I mean, there's some stuff that's just straight up inappropriate. You're like, I can't believe that's happening in the church, right? But it's the Spirit who moves us along. I heard this story in a sermon once. It comes from Jimmy Carter's book, uh, Sources of Strength, talking about you know, the imperfect ways we communicate the little that we know. Jimmy Carter, in the year that he became president, he, along with uh, Billy Graham, uh, for those of you who are younger, Billy Graham was a very famous preacher, okay? Um, And Jimmy Carter was the president (laughs) at one point. I had to look it up, too. Um, But (laughs) Billy Graham, (laughs) this very famous preacher who God used in amazing ways, uh, was invited, and Jimmy Carter were invited to speak at the Southern Baptist Convention attended by 17,000 people. And a truck driver, a truck driver was slated to give a five-minute speech sandwiched in between Billy Graham and Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and he was very nervous, and he had never really uh, given a speech before. This is Jimmy Carter retelling this story. He told Jimmy Carter, I've never really given a speech before. And he got up in the, micro- in the microphone in front of the crowd and after Billy Graham had spoken, and he nervously mumbled into the microphone, I was always a drunk, and I didn't have any friends. The only people I knew were men like me who hung around in the bars in the town where I lived. And then the truck truck driver described how someone told him about Jesus and led him to faith in Christ. And as a new Christian, the truck driver wanted to tell everybody he knew about the Lord, but he only really felt comfortable in bars. So he decided to talk to the people there. And the bartender wasn't too happy with him. You know, he told the truck driver he was bad for business and kind of a nuisance. But he was undeterred. And the truck driver kept on sharing about Jesus, and in time, people at the bar began asking questions. And the truck driver said, at first, they treated me like I was a joke. But I kept up with the questions, and when I couldn't answer one, I went and got the answer and came back with it. Fourteen of my friends became Christians. And Jimmy Carter writes, the truck driver's speech was the highlight of the convention. I don't think anyone there will ever forget that five-minute fumbling statement or remember what I or even Billy Graham had to say. You see, the message of Christ and him crucified is that Jesus is great. Jesus is great. Not the preacher, not the tribe, not the party, not the denomination, not the location. Jesus is great. And he welcomes those who know they are in desperate need of him. And just like the quality of your faith is not what saves you, but the quality of the object of your faith, which is Jesus Christ, so the quality of your words do not bring somebody to faith. They didn't bring you to faith. It's the Spirit. He does what he can, only He can do. The Spirit's power is that which brings us from death to life. It's, that's what un, it's that which unites us to each other. 
no matter how it's preached or who preaches it. Jesus was crucified on the cross for our sins. He died and rose again. And he stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He offers us peace from the wrath of God's justice. And he offers us rest from the troubles of this world. This is what God has revealed to you by the Spirit, told to us for many years by many people who are just as imperfect and silly as us. May the Spirit use our message, the crucified Christ, to do what only the Spirit can do and to unite him, us, the only way he's able to. This is good, mess- this is good news. Jesus will increase. We must decrease. Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us the gift of salvation. And thank you for uniting us to your Son. We were enemies, God, but you've made us friends. We were foreigners, but you made us family. Holy Spirit, unite the church around the world as the sun is lifted up. I pray for the church here in Kalispell, even for Faith Covenant Church, that we would make much of your son. I pray that we would be united in our mission as imperfectly as we do it to talk about your son in his crucified estate in his risen estate. Thank you for your grace, Father. Amen.